friends, fans, and colleagues. Uh, this is uh, Karen Tate, and uh, it's Wednesday, so you know it must be uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine Day. And uh, I am so happy to uh, have with me uh, Cindy Rassicott. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, her memoir, actually, uh, and sh- uh, her call has just dropped. So we're going to wait for her to... Uh, uh, to call right back in, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure she will. Uh, but in the meantime, I'll tell you a little bit about her and um, about the show we're going to have today. And I also have a couple poems uh, that I think you're going to enjoy. Uh, what I'm going to do first here, though, uh, is just uh, take a quick second uh, and uh, tell you about Cindy. Uh, She's a retired uh, marriage family therapist. Uh, Her life has been uh, a spiritual journey that uh, took on new dimensions when she and her family moved to Bangkok. Uh, which is in Thailand, of course, and they were there for three years. Uh, While she was there, she met her spiritual teacher, uh, Venerable uh, Dhammananda, I think, uh, Bhikkhuni, uh, the first fully ordained uh, Theravada nun, uh, which was an encounter that opened her heart and changed her forever, she says. Uh, This deepening relationship led to uh, writing her memoir, uh, Finding Venerable Mother, A Daughter's Spiritual Quest to Thailand. And in it, she chronicles her adventures uh, along the spiritual path. So uh, I think that's going to be an interesting conversation today, and uh, uh, we're going to be starting uh, any second here. And uh, I want to invite you to stay with me when the interview is over, uh, because I have uh, two beautiful poems that uh, I think you'll enjoy. Uh, One is about Isis, uh, and the other is... um, Uh, by this uh, wonderful friend, a new friend of mine, Harriet Ann Ellenberger. She's a a wonderful poet, and she's written a poem called uh, Being Here Now, which I think really reflects um, life today and everything we are all going through. Uh, So I think you'll enjoy that. Also, too, I want to remind you about uh, the upcoming shows. Um, On August 5th, uh, I will have Deanne Quarry with me. Uh, The topic of our show is Hakate, Reemerging. She is Roaring. Uh, I think that's uh, going to be a really fun show. And then on the 12th of August, uh, Marguerite Rigoliozo is with me, and uh, our show topic is Uncloaking the Real Mother Mary. Uh, We're going to be looking at Mary uh, from a very goddess-oriented perspective, uh, not the very narrow box that uh, Christianity uh, or Islam uh, put Mary in, and uh, I think that's a, a, a very interesting topic that uh, will open open minds and maybe get uh, get you thinking about Mary in a very different way. I've often thought. Um, you know, uh, that Jesus probably learned his uh, ideas of, um, uh, you know, of social justice, his values at his mother's knee. Uh, And, um, yeah, I think Marguerite's going to go into um, the research she's done in her thesis that actually uh, opens up uh, a whole new view uh, of Mary. But anyway, uh, today uh, 
we are talking about uh, Venerable Mother. And uh, Cindy, I want to welcome you to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Thank you. I'm I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you for your time today. And um, uh, when you were, uh, I I saw your call dropped and then you called back in. I was uh, sharing your bio with listeners. Um, How was it that your family ended up in uh, Bangkok uh, for three years? Yes, well, my former husband and my teenage son and I moved there in 2005, and that was due to my um, former husband's uh, job with an oil company. They transferred us in what's called an expat assignment, and we actually were able to live there for three years, which is quite a gift, and I'm very grateful for the time that I spent there. Yeah, that sounds exciting. Uh, I've often thought uh, of of becoming an expat myself, uh, <laughs> but I think I'd probably want to go to Paris or uh, or, or someplace <laughs> like that, or uh, you know, somewhere in the Scandinavian countries. Um, but uh, so let me ask you this: Was this a surprise? I mean, did you go there with any sort of spiritual quest in mind, or did you stumble into it? How like the nature of a spiritual quest to be completely um, unknown, and I had no idea when I went there that this was the opening that I was going to embark upon. I did meet Venerable Dhammananda, and you said her name perfectly, by the way, and I met her at a conference in Bangkok, quite to my surprise, three months after we moved there, uh, I had attended a conference, a women's conference for women in developing countries, and there was an afternoon session called Faith, Feminism, and the Power of Love. And I thought that was quite an interesting combination to mix politics and spirit. And there was a, a very interesting, I wouldn't say altercation, but heated dialogue between during the workshop that happened in the afternoon between two uh, Islamic women. And there was sort of a tension lingering in the air after the debate, and that's when my teacher stepped forward and said, we cannot solve anything with anger. Anger doesn't lead us anywhere. It is much more difficult to practice kindness and compassion. That is the goal of Buddhism. And you know what happened in that instant was my body just sort of flashed awake and it was as if I had been sent a message and you know as with all things spiritual it's it's a whole experience it's kind of hard to describe but it's like my mind woke up and I knew that this woman had something very powerful to say to me and I wanted to spend more time with her so luckily she invited women to come down there was men there too actually but anyone who was in the workshop to come down to her temple, which is an all-women's female monastery uh, west of Bangkok, about 40 minutes, and to spend the weekend there, and that's where I began to uh, begin my journey in my relationship with her that has lasted now, gosh, uh, 15 years, and I just spoke to her the other night. You know, the journey continues. Wow. 
Um, so so much you said there, uh, you know, uh, triggers so much in my head. You know, the the first thing is, you know, when you mentioned it was interesting to see uh, politics juxtaposed with spirituality. You know, I'm I'm always I'm always surprised to hear people say that. Um, you know, in fact, um, I was just reading a review of one of my books on Amazon just yesterday, and someone was disappointed that, you know, I let politics enter into the book on spirituality. And, you know, for me, I, I kind of think, how can the two not uh, be together, you know, because, um, I mean, government budgets are a reflection of morality. Morality is a reflection of spirituality. You know, it seems like they do go um, hand in hand, you know. Um, I, I know there are a lot of people who uh, don't see feminism even as uh, maybe a spiritual, you know, going, um, in, you know, in alignment with spirituality. But I, I think if your spirituality is about equality and justice and nurturing and love and compassion, then, you know, I would think that's the kind of government and politics you'd want to, you know. Um, so I've, I've thought that, you know, in a way it's almost become my mission to uh, talk about the fact that I think spirituality and politics need to be reconciled, you know. Um, the other thing I, I just want to share real quick, because I want to talk to you more about, of course, the what it was like with the nun. Um, it, you know, if, if we can also get into, um, you know, Buddhism from the standpoint of, you know, they seem to condone a lot of suffering and sacrifice. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to hear about that, as, as well as I'm so surprised this nun has such a... Um, uh, you know, such a platform because of the patriarchy in Buddhism. So, anyway, I'll throw that all back to you uh, for your for your comments, please. Yes, uh, that's quite a lot. I'm going to take the first uh, concept first, which is uh, combining spirituality and politics. Which, in a nutshell, I would say I couldn't agree with you more and what comes to mind of course is our beloved John Lewis who passed away this past week and he of course in my mind represented a emerging of uh, without getting too political but morality spirituality his whole idea of good trouble was one of always doing good and um I just want to throw that out there, not get too far from the subject at hand, but say that I really kind of agree with what you're saying. One of the two politics of spirituality are not necessarily separate entities. And if you don't mind, oh, did you want to respond? Uh, well, well, no. I mean, obviously, you know, we're on the same page there. Uh, and I just get frustrated with, you know, for instance, you know, goddess advocates, women and women are men in goddess spirituality, and you know, they don't want to delve deeply there. You know, they want to just, you know, continue to do rituals or learn about different goddesses and you know that sort of thing. But they never take it to the next level and and evolve 
and uh, in, in, uh, make it something that we can use to make the world a better place. Um, so, so yeah, I mean that that would be my that that would be my response. You know, I would just want to see more of an evolution uh, in the followers of goddess spirituality to see the importance um, of 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 politics because you know that's how we change the world you know right and spirituality is all about change in oneself and and how we come into the world and change uh influence i might say <laughs> influence others yeah. now the, the second part of your comment i'm, I'm going to have to ask you to elaborate on i I wasn't quite sure what you were saying. Buddhism as suffering and sacrifice, is that correct? Yeah, and, and let me say, you know, I am I am uh, totally open to you correcting me. Um, but, you know, of late, one of the things I've been interested in is how uh, we normalize um, abuse and exploitation. And I have felt for a long time, uh, as a recovering Catholic, uh, you know, one example, you see Jesus up there on the cross, and, uh, and, you know, people believe to emulate him and his suffering and sacrifice, you know, is to be closer to him. And to me, that sort of sets up this scenario, a brainwash, if you will, uh, to control the masses and get them to uh, believe that it's noble or the right thing to do or the spiritual thing to do uh, to suffer uh, and, and to sacrifice sacrifice when it that just turns out to be exploitation you know uh and i've been told that in buddhism there's a lot of that as well uh you know it's not just in in christianity and um i i just i wondered uh it, uh, you know what is is it like christianity you know you can see so many different aspects and interpret things uh, differently depending on the teacher because I'm getting, you know, I've been getting the feedback that Buddhism does that to their followers as well. Well, I can speak as one person and I could say that nothing could be farther from the truth and the heart and the message of the Buddha. The Buddha claimed in the First Noble Truth that life is suffering only to the extent that people understand we are of a human nature. Therefore, we are not uh, omnipotent. Therefore, we are susceptible to human suffering. He wanted nothing more than to lead people on the path to joy and nirvana and enlightenment. So uh, it is not within the construct of, if I may, Catholic or Christian guilt and morality. It is a completely other set of uh, ideals and philosophy. And one thing that I would like to point out, and I will get back to my teacher, there are many Buddhists on the what's called the path of socially engaged Buddhism, which brings up the point that you, I think, alluded to earlier, that in fact uh, my teacher, who is uh, who stood against the Thai patriarchy, is not only fighting for, and I wouldn't say she uses the word fight. She's a spiritual warrior in that sense. Maybe, maybe that's the type of fight. Um, and through love and kindness, she also seeks to further the uh, empowerment 
of women in all religions. I had the pleasure of talking to her on, I believe it was Tuesday night this week. We're still in contact, and of course I'm now in the process of writing a second book about her life. But to that point, what she said was that the uh, she's been in conversations with women, Jewish women, who want to rise to the ranks of rabbis. I mean, she's, she's uh, the Buddha claimed, the Buddha claimed that um, anyone can be enlightened. Therefore, there is no discrimination against gender, sex, religion. In that sense, and maybe this is my teacher's own personal perspective, anyone can be free from suffering. But the notion was to be free from nothing from suffering, not to um, be contained within the confines of those limitations. Um, Okay, I'm not sure I caught that last part. Um, Can you explain it a different way? Uh, Let's see if I can remember what I said. Um, Suffering is a path to enlightenment. It's not a path to more suffering. Is that uh, helpful? Well, I guess in, in, okay, well, and maybe, you know, like so many things, um, you know, uh, I'm going to just call it religion or spirituality in the hands of uh, of certain people and it comes out differently. I mean, I know there's an awful lot of patriarchy in Buddhism. Um, you know, other other people have, you know, told me how badly the nuns are treated in Buddhism, you know, in, in patriarchy. Um, I mean, just like Christianity. I mean, you have fundamentalists and then you have progressives, you know. Um, and so maybe in the hands of some, this idea of suffering as a road to enlightenment can be used to um, I mean look we all have to suffer you know I mean there's suffering from illness there's suffering from circumstance but um, but we don't have to wallow in the suffering and and think it's a good thing I mean because can't we reach enlightenment in ways beyond just suffering I I think that you I think that you have a rather black and white notion of the context of of uh, Buddhism, and you can stand to correct me, but it really is uh, one aspect of the human experience that, if gone neglected, one cannot. You might look at it even in terms of psychological terms, and I'm not saying Buddhism does this, but, you know, Jung talks about the dark side or the shadow side. It's almost like we have to embrace our full selves in order to experience the fullness of our humanity and our joy. One, in in Buddhism, uh, there is this idea of interconnectedness of all, so that suffering leads to joy. One moment... Uh, there's also the notion of impermanence so that I had a for example I had a fabulous day yesterday everything seemed to be going right Uh, I just felt things that I've been struggling with come together it was a very joyous experience 
But as Jack Cornfield says, who is the author of many books on Buddhism, after the ecstasy, the laundry. We don't expect to stay in the joy forever. We don't expect to uh, stay in the suffering forever. Life is in flux. And that is who we are as humans. And that's both the beauty and the joy of our existence. Okay, fair enough. And and listen, I appreciate the conversation because, um, you know, I like to bring different ideas and, and different concepts uh, to my listeners. You know, I mean, I think of the show as a platform to teach and share uh, different ideas. And, um, you know, I, I uh, and, and I, you know, I, I'm happy to stand corrected. You, you know what I mean? Because I don't, I, I don't know everything about everything. And, uh, you know, and, and I love to hear your version of of Buddhism because obviously it's it's been different um, from you know what I've been told uh, and and you know and what I understand and uh, you know I could be I could be completely wrong. Um, so so thank you you know so uh, you know thank you for you know being willing to have this conversation with me. Um, and so, so you're a, a Western, uh, a Western Jewish woman, and um, you know you had this profound experience with this uh, this Thai Buddhist nun. Um, how do you characterize this uh, relationship uh, you have with her? Uh, I mean, how has she most changed your life? Yes, thank you. Um, and and by the way, I. I, I was very glad to participate in that conversation. I can only speak to my experience of Buddhism. Certainly there are instances of those that you uh, have also talked about. But moving on, um, yes, I am a Western Jewish woman, and um, I'm sorry, I just had a brain lapse. Can you remind me the path that we're on right now? <laughs> Well, um, I wanted to, uh, you know, talking about, uh, you know, how she changed your life, uh, Dominanda. Yes. Uh, what would you, you know, what would you say, um, uh, you know, it, it were some of the most profound things that shifted in you um, for having met her and, uh, you know, being taught by her? Yes. Um, well, for one thing, I think, I am unusual in that sense. Uh, I don't mean by that that I'm special. I just mean that I have the ability to cross into another culture and really um, not be too interested in my own personal... Uh, I don't need to carry the baggage of my own culture with me. I'm truly fascinated by others. And the other thing that happens, of course, is that Dhammananda is very open to people of other cultures and religions, and uh, Judaism being no exception. She also speaks English, which was a major help, because I don't speak Thai, so that makes a big difference in terms of communicating with someone. As for my personal experience, I was ordained by her in... 2014, that was what is called temporary ordination. 
she seeks to, and by temporary ordination, she te- she seeks to take lay people like myself and um, allow us to come into the monastic lifestyle for a period of three weeks, take on the robes, shave our heads, uh, take the precepts, which are similar to moral uh, agreements. I, I might compare them to the Ten Commandments of something like that Um, and there was a profound moment when in the process of going to have my head shaved we were all I was one uh, English speaking woman in a group of 122 Thai women and everyone goes before their teacher and kneels at her feet and she clips you still have hair, she clips the first lock of hair in the beginning of the ritual to have your head shaved. And everyone was crying. And as we proceeded towards her, I thought, what's wrong with me? I'm not shedding a tear. I don't seem to be emotional. And I think partly I was just uh, maybe scared, I'm not sure, a little bit numb. But when I knelt at her feet, all of a sudden, I had this rush of incredible, what I call joyful crying, just the sense of complete release and sobbing at her feet, being so grateful that I met her. And you asked the question, how did she change my life? Um, that was a significant significant moment of personal transformation and in the book the book is really just to to give a little background is really me coming to terms with a fairly distant and cold non-nurturing mother and here here in Dhammananda I experienced this total loving compassion compassionate woman who loved me unconditionally in a way that my own mother never could and somehow the awareness of all that she is and all that my mother was and all of who I am and who I am capable, that I'm capable of being loved and received came into me in that moment. And it was like a complete moment of liberation and freedom from quite, quite what had been quite a painful childhood experience. That was one profound moment I can think of how she changed my life. And there are many others. Um, Sometimes it's hard to put into words the experience of being of interpersonal transformation. I think that's why I write, to help to understand and try to contain it within a uh, a literate perspective. But it's an a whole encompassing feeling of moving through, for me, my own personal maybe blocked places or tribulations to an experience of intense freedom and expansion of myself. And I might also add love and acceptance of myself in a completely new and different way. And how that changed me is it freed me up to realize I have a voice I am a person, I am a woman, I can speak my truth in a way that somehow I had never been able to 
live or express myself up until that point. I, I understand. And, you know, in hearing you describe it, uh, yeah, I, I totally get it that it's hard to sometimes language these things. And uh, when you write it, you know, you, you, know, you, you have that, uh, you know, you're holding space for uh, you uh, finding the exact right words, uh, and you can sit there and rewrite it and rewrite it until you kind of get it right, and, uh, you know, that's different than just an impromptu conversation, and, you know, and as I'm hearing you describe uh, being there in her presence and, uh, you know, being taught by her, uh, this liberation um, that came, this, um, uh, this difficulty with your uh, relationship with your mother, um, a lot of women who come to goddess say the very same things, you know, uh, the goddess spirituality liberates them, you know, oftentimes they've had this uh, difficulty, uh, you know, a fraught relationship with their mother, and uh, uh, so it's interesting, it's almost as if, um, in my perspective, uh, you know, she's um, um, like the hugging uh, you know the hugging saint, the Indian woman, uh, whose uh, whose name is escaping me at the moment. But it's almost as if uh, Dhammananda, like this other Indian woman, is almost a living embodiment of goddess. Um, I mean, I wonder if you've ever thought of her in that way. Yes, I think the woman you're speaking of is her name is Ama. And yes, um, Ama. Yes. Uh, I think a powerful woman who is spiritually wise in the way that Dhammananda is uh, certainly exemplifies goddess characteristics. I don't think she would speak of herself in terms of being a goddess. I think she speaks of herself as being a humble, uh, spiritual follower of the Buddha, but those are just words. Yes, I think in terms of what you're saying, she is that type of woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't imagine Amma thinking herself of, of, as a goddess either, but those of us that see the qualities they embody and the way they uh, walk in the world, um, you know, maybe see them as some of the closest um, flesh and blood representations of goddess, uh, you know, we, we actually might see. Um, you know, you said you were you were writing a book about her. Um, I'm just curious, and you know, and uh, I just want to touch on this one more time, and uh, and and you know, and then and then I want to go back to your book. Uh, but does she talk at all about um, any pushback uh, she would get from within Buddhism because of it being so patriarchal? I mean, did she encounter some of this? Uh, mistreatment that we hear happens with so many of the nuns in Buddhism, you know, where they're marginalized? Very good question. No, I would say she personally hasn't, but that's because of who she is and the path she's walked. She's a very interesting woman. She uh, was ordained when she was, uh, she became a Buddhist nun when she was 56, she was, had been a mother with three grown sons, married for 30 years, 
a successful professor in Buddhist philosophy at a prestigious Thai university, if we look to the women's history and the revisionist history that went on in terms of the 70s to rewrite history to reflect women's voices, women stepping forward. She did the same thing in terms of Buddhism. She went back and proved how in the original text, and this is true, the Buddha ordained his own uh, aunt, Mahapachapati, as one of the first female followers. So this was, he ordained 500 women in his time. The whole evolution of the patriarchy says that in still in Thailand, incredulously enough, says that um, women cannot be ordained. Um, there is a saying that I believe it's, and I'm not sure if it's Thich Mahan, someone has, that a soft front and a back of steel, this is the character that Dhammananda possesses. She possesses a inherent determination and strength which would make it hard to have her subjected in any way by the uh, negative influences of the Thai Sangha, which is the Thai community of Buddhist monks, the patriarchal system. Not to say that many women haven't had that experience, but um, in her struggle, she has certainly come into conflict with the Thai male monk establishment who have uh, still declared interestingly there was a law in 1928 passed the first two Thai women tried to or be ordained into what's called the bhikkhuni or the the higher status there's a novice nun called the samanari and a higher fully ordained nun called the bhikkhuni they were told that it was, um, let's see, how did the Sangha, the order of the Sangha, basically monks cannot ordain women, totally contrary to what the Buddhist did in his own time. That law is still in effect today. So to say that she hasn't had to brush against the uh, arm of the patriarchy is, is, you know, of course she has. Still she stands in her... Uh, in her own path and while she was the very first to be ordained in 2001 and by the way she had to go to Sri Lanka to be ordained because of course she couldn't be ordained in Thailand now in 2020 there are 300 ordained female fully ordained Pikuni now compare that to the numbers in Thailand 300,000 male monks which is the equivalent of a it's the male equivalent of a female monk and 300 women so of course she has faced <laughs> opposition but um, her mode of operation is to continuously educate and inform it's, she's not confrontational she needn't be confrontational because she stands in the truth one doesn't have to be defensive about that. One can just go about her business of saying, this is who I am, and this is what I believe, and this is what the Buddha taught, and this is what the Buddha did. And um, she's a strong model for many women. 
those who are aware of her anyway. Right, right. Well, and and uh, what comes to mind hearing you tell her story, she reminds me a, a little bit of, of uh, Hildegard uh, von Bingen, too, who managed to, uh, you know, be a, a prominent figure in medieval times, you know, when women were basically chattel, you know. Uh, you know, we mm-hmm. have these, these women that, that managed to overcome the patriarchy and um, it be who uh, they were meant to be. And it's great, uh, and thank you for that story of her. I mean, I'm, it's so wonderful that she had the option of going to Sri Lanka and and become ordained. Uh, you know, when there's a will, there's a way. I mean, uh, like the women who were ordained um, on boats offshore, um, you know, I'm trying to remember what they're called. I've interviewed a few of them on the show, but it was years ago, uh, where in order to be ordained priests or rabbis, I think it was priests, uh, they literally had to uh, do it off the continent, uh, and and so they were ordained on boats offshore. And, um, hmm. you know, uh, thank goodness for them, you know, so that, you know, the patriarchy was... Um, you know they 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 didn't allow the patriarchy to stop them from uh from their calling um but Cindy I want to ask you after your temporary ordination um when you came back into the mundane world um do you feel you were changed any um was you know did you have a different mission in life um I'm just curious what that experience was like for you I uh, like the question. Yeah, I came back uh, looking very alive and radiant. And people said that um, I looked more like myself than I ever had. I was in my power. It was many years of after that, well, not many years, I guess, considering I'm 69, but five years later that I grew more deeply into myself, went through my own personal journey, and was myself divorced from my dear husband after 34 years of marriage. So the ordination, you know, the things only make sense in the past when we can look at them from the perspective of now and then. I'm not sure at the time I would have said all this, but I think there was a link between my ordination and my personal growth and my personal path. And so I've been on a sort of a journey of personal transformation and might I call it individuation for the la for well, for my whole life I've been on a spiritual journey, but growing more firmly into myself and more confidently into into who I am as a writer. I, I think the ability to write, uh, the ability to speak one's own truth, it's all a matter of coming into oneself more fully. So, yes, I think my life changed, was changed pretty powerfully by that one event. Yeah, I I do think when um 
uh, you know, what we call it sacred feminine liberation theology and theology with an A, uh, it does really change you, you know. Um, you know, I've, I've taught some classes that uh, takes for the Queen of Heaven, for instance, that uh, the Unitarian Universalist women um, have put together a very powerful course. And, um, you know, it really does, uh, I think, change women's lives when they um, – you know, when they encounter these teachings, you know, um, you can't unhear it. You know, you can't unknow it. And, um, you know, and, and, and I think you either allow it to liberate you and you evolve uh, or you become frustrated and stagnant. Um, and, of course, obviously it's a choice, but, um, but some of us end up on a, a new path that we might not have thought um, you know, we would be on. Um, so you see, uh, you see your writing uh, as a as a spiritual practice, um, and, and I, I want to hear more about that. Uh, but we're going to have to take a quick break, uh, and and then we'll come back to that. I want to hear about your writing as a spiritual practice, and um, uh, you know, and, and more about you know your current project, but. Um, before uh, before we do that, uh, I want to just share this clip with listeners from the trailer uh, for Joe Carson's film, uh, Dancing with Gaia. We'll be back in just two minutes. Hello, let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is Drusilla Pettibone on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example... The info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. Yes, uh, Dancing with Gaia is available only at dancingwithgaia.com. 
Uh, and if you're tuning in late, um, just wanted to let you know I am chatting with uh, Cindy Rassicott, and uh, we're talking about um, her memoir, Finding Venerable Mother, A Daughter's Spiritual Quest to Thailand. And uh, Cindy, um, I was uh, I was asking you before the the commercial break uh, about you seeing your writing uh, as a spiritual practice. Um, did you want to chat about that a, a little bit? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think uh, writing for me is a diving inward, deeper into what I call the whole of me. Um, what I mean by spiritual, well, I, I see writing for me personally as a healing art and a spiritual practice. By spiritual, I mean seeking a broader truth and a broader wisdom than that which might be just available to me intellectually. It's kind of a total embodiment of the the inner truth that I hear. When I feel like I'm writing from a spiritual place, it's almost like the ideas bubble up from inside of me, from deep inside of me. Sometimes I don't know where the voices come from, but they're very powerful and instructive. And when I dig deeper into the layers of my experience, I uncover what I call the universal truth, the the broad truth that encompass all of the human experience so that, like you said earlier in the show, many women who seek spiritual paths have had difficult relationships with their mothers. Well, I'm not unusual in that sense. And if I if I write about just Cindy as, um, I don't know, the particulars of my relationship to my mother, at some point in writing particularly in memoir, you come to something called, that's called in the, uh, in the structure of memoir, takeaway or reflective thought. And you can think of that as something where I'm speaking directly to the reader's experience. That uh, I, I can give you examples of it from my book. Unfortunately, I don't have my book right in front of me, but you could address the reader as you. Like, I know there was an example in my book where I said sometimes you feel a part of you and an old part of you is dying and a new part of you is being born and suddenly you don't recognize yourself in the mirror. Well, that's not an experience particular to Cindy. That's an, an experience that many people have. So that's what I mean by uncovering perhaps the deeper, the spiritual, the more profound wisdom that lies beneath the individual experience. No, I I understand it. I I understand it. Your uh, it, it that makes that makes perfect sell as uh, perfect sense. You know, we're um, we're uncovering the mysteries of life. You know, um, I mean, I don't think we were put on the planet to uh, be hamsters on a wheel, you know, to be these uh, uber consumers that uh, work from womb to tomb. And, uh, you know, and that's the, you know, that's the point of our existence. Um, you know, I think that's just an unfortunate aspect of, um, you know, how we have to get by in life, you know, survive in life. Um, but I think what you're talking about, you know, uh, finding the deeper meaning,
meanings. Uh, I think that's truly what we're uh, here to try to um, uncover and understand. Um, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Right, and that's the interconnectedness of all. That's where I can relate to you and you can relate to me and the beauty of being human where we can understand one another and share in each other. Right, right, I, I get that. Um, so now you talk about uh, a message of hope your book offers um, and uh, how women can cultivate hope uh, in these difficult times. Um, I, I wonder, you know, considering particularly what we're going through with the pandemic and uh, Trump and all the rest, um, you know, are you, are you seeing a deeper meaning in all of this? Um, um, you know, how are you managing to stay hopeful? Yes, it's it's a trying time for all of us. Uh, I do believe as part of the cycle of history that change is inevitable and that we are in a huge process of change. And one of the beauties, and I use that word, kind of carefully of COVID because I don't mean to minimalize the suffering or loss of life for people who have personal experience with that. But it brings us all, the whole of humanity together. For instance, what I do affects you and what you do affects me. And we may live on different parts of the world, but we're all affected by the uh, the virus and what happens to one can happen to another. So in one sense, we're all sort of, you might say, on a somewhat similar plane, a, a similar path of existence. I do think that this is a particularly dark time, but I, I'm not without hope. I think that one thing that kept me going in, I don't know if it's just who I am or part of what my mother gave me. My mother was a lawyer who sought to be a lawyer in 1934. She was at the top of her class in uh, probably there were two women in a class of men. So she, she too was one of these women who, shall we say, persisted, uh, very strong-willed, didn't unfortunately have a soft front and a strong back. She had a hard front and a hard back. But nevertheless, what I'm trying to say is we can continue to go forward with hope. Just because these things are happening doesn't mean we have to lose, as Dr. Martin Luther King said, keep your eyes on the prize. There are, there are things Better things are possible. We can come together in a, a unity and move into a new phase. I can't say what will happen from all this, but I, I, I don't feel hopeless. And I think that one thing that helps in, in these times is tuning into the present, oddly enough keeping very mindful of putting one foot in front of the other, 
keeping very mindful of who I am now, what I'm doing now, and doing it with all sense of integrity and openness and honesty and love. If we can keep our hearts open to love, then we have a chance at healing this beleaguered planet, both as a earth, as a people, and uh, including the animal kingdom. There are many uh, possibilities that I see for moving forward. Well, I, I agree, and I, I yeah, I, I think that was well said. I mean, uh, you know, just the idea of our interconnection, uh, we see that in the importance of wearing masks, don't we? You know, that, that we affect one another, and we all are interconnected. I mean, in a mundane way, uh, this whole mask mm-hmm. issue, uh, I think, separates the people who understand our interconnectedness on different levels versus the people who are just about the I and the me, uh, instead of the we and the us, um, you know, if you will. Um, and uh, and I also believe, too, I mean, and it, just like you said, you know, not to minimize the death and the suffering because it's carnage, it's terrible. Um, you know, uh, the, the fact that the president, you know, isn't being uh, charged with a dereliction of duty uh, and all sorts of other things. Um, you know, uh, it is, is amazing to me. I think the press has been way too kind on him. You know, even the ones who have uh, been critical, uh, it feels like to me they have given him a pass and uh, they haven't used the strong enough terms to describe, uh, you know, his, his failure. But uh, to me it feels like um, the pandemic is – uh, shedding a light on the disparities um, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think more and more people are seeing it and they can't not unsee it now uh, you know with these long food lines and uh, people not having enough money in the bank to uh, you know to weather this you know because they're living paycheck to paycheck and, and all the rest you know the income disparities the social uh, inequities I mean it's all coming to light I think and uh, I think the protests in the street are an example of that. Um, I don't think we're going to be the same after this, and I hope in a good way. Uh, I think we're going to demand change uh, in our world, and uh, maybe it had to happen this way. I, I mean, even Trump, I see Trump as the flesh and blood example of patriarchy at its worst, you know, and uh, and you can't unsee it. You know, you, you just can't unsee it. So, um, anyway, I want to give you the last word here, Cindy, uh, before we go. Uh, I know your book, um, Finding Venerable Mother, uh, it's one part memoir, one part spiritual lesson. Um, you know, uh, what, uh, what closing thoughts do you have you'd like to share that maybe I haven't asked you? Well, thank you. I, I just want to applaud what you just said. I thought it was really well said. And moving into what I would like to say, it was a real pleasure to talk to you today, as was a real pleasure for me to write the book that I wrote and chronicling my experience. And one piece of just, if I might, sales 
news is that I was just approved for something called BookBub uh, on August 10th, and I believe um, that my book will be offered in the online, uh, the ebook version for 99 cents that day. So it's a really good, it's a really good way to take uh, advantage of getting. Uh, if you're interested in reading the book, that would be something to take advantage of. Um, the last word I think I would say is I I really feel like this is an important time, as you said, and one in which we can all be mindful and, and aware of one another. And I really think conversations like the ones we have today are so important. And I really appreciated the way that you blended uh, spirituality and pol- politics, if you will, the everyday, the everyday uh, realities of our of our life. I don't have any final thoughts. For one thing, I do think about in terms of COVID. I wrote my last newsletter was focused on hope, was simply that perhaps this is a time of incubation rather than isolation, and that's how I hold it in my heart. You know, new birth comes from a time of incubation and quiet and that's the time me personally I've been afforded thankfully I haven't been exposed to the virus so I'm trying to use that time and I think we can all perhaps it sounds a little Pollyannish but keep our keep our perspectives on my personal feeling is I'm very grateful for what I have and gratitude helps me to make it through the day and really appreciate living here on this earth and having this incredible beauty available to all of us. Well said, well said. Uh, I I really do like that. This is an incubation period, and uh, uh, I I think that's perfect, perfect. And we will see what is birthed (laughs) uh, when we come out uh, the other other side of this. Um, Well, Cindy, uh, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. I really have enjoyed, uh, you know, hearing all aspects of of what you had to say today. And uh, and I would just want to say the best of luck to you with, with your book. Uh, in the title again, Finding Venerable Mother, A Daughter's uh, Spiritual Quest to Thailand. Uh, Is there a website that if uh, someone wanted to find out more about you or the book, they can find you? Yes, thank you. Uh, It's simply my name. It's C-I-N-D-Y-R-A-S-I-C-O-T, CindyRossico.com. And there you can actually see a lot of pictures of Venerable Mother. In Thai, her name is Luang Mei, which means Venerable Mother. So that's what I call her. I, instead of Dhammananda, I call her Luang Mei. And there's an actual live interview with her, which I taped two years ago in Nepal when I was at a conference with her. So it's quite interesting if anyone's interested in learning more about her and about me. And uh, I just have really appreciated this. Thank you so much. Well, you know, keep in touch, uh, Cindy. Um, you know, I am always open to, uh, you know, other topics. If ever you want to come back and talk more about Buddhism or, uh, you know, talk about uh, Venerable Mother, um, you know, I, I, I'm definitely open to considering, uh, considering the topic for, uh, for another show. Great, great. Well, thank you so okay. much. And I really... 
I really think you have a lot to say, so I hope a lot of people tune in. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, best of luck with the book, and uh, definitely stay safe, okay? You too. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Um, Well, listeners, before I let you go today, um, I just wanted to share these two poems that uh, I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, And I'm aware of them uh, because of my new friend, uh, Harriet Ann Ellenberger. She's uh, She's a poet or maybe you say poetess. I'm not sure about that, but maybe. Um, the first one she sent me I, I uh, really appreciated because she knows I'm you know, a fan of the Egyptian goddesses. And she said she found this in some old papers, and it was part of a poem, uh, and she no longer had uh, the name of the, of the poet. She knew the first initials were HD, uh, but she wasn't sure of the last name. And uh, I, I don't know, I just uh, thought it was rather unique and beautiful, and I wanted to share this one as, uh, as well as the next one uh, Harriet wrote herself. And they're both very short, but, uh, uh, but I think they're things of beauty. So the first one about the Egyptian goddesses, specifically Isis, uh, it goes like this. We have seen how the most amiable under physical stress become wolves, jackals, mongrel curs. We know further that hunger may make hyenas of the best of us. Let us therefore, though we do not forget love, the creator, her chariot and white doves, entreat Hest, Aset, Isis, the great enchantress, and her attribute of Serket, the original great mother who drove corniced scorpions before her. I just thought that was that was beautiful. Uh, that was written uh, during or just before World War II uh, about, uh, about the goddess Isis. Now, here's what uh, Harriet wrote herself uh, with regard to, um, you know, what she was feeling we're all sort of going through these days. Uh, it's called uh, Being Here Now, and it goes like this. As Earth warms and her ice fields melt and the skeletal bones of her crust shift and her hot core cooks up something new, human structures collapse along with the Siberian permafrost. Being here is like being born. Everything is dark and tumultuous and you don't know where you're headed and you didn't ask for this. But this, whatever it is, is already happening, and it's too late to bail out now. Call the midwife, call the female shaman, call 911 multiverse. We have to learn to let go. So that was by Harriet Ann Ellenberger. All right, uh, that about does it uh, for today. Um, I invite you back uh, next Wednesday and every Wednesday. Uh, I do want to mention we have uh, coming up in the month of August, 
uh, I think it's the month of August, I'll ha or maybe it's September. I have to actually look. Uh, I'll mention it again. Uh, but just to kind of put this in back of your mind, we're going to have a weekend doubleheader coming up again. The last one I did with Laura Perry on trance. Uh, this next one I'm going to be doing with Joe Carson, and it's on Ferriferia. Uh, I know a lot of people might not be familiar with um, uh, with the spiritual um, uh, teachings uh, of Ferriferia, uh, but we're going to do a weekend double header. We're going to talk about Ferriferia on a Saturday, and then on Sunday, Joe Carson is going to lead everyone in a Ferriferia ritual. So that's something uh, something a little different. I think um, we will all enjoy. I know I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so remember, uh, next uh, next Wednesday uh, I'll be with you, and um, just to refresh myself, yeah, the topic of the show is reemerging Hakate. She is roaring, so you won't want to miss that. So mark your calendars, or better yet, uh, click the follow button on the show page so you get an email reminder in your inbox. Reemerging Hikate, she is roaring. That will be August 5th. Uh, thank you very much, listeners, for uh, tuning in with us today. Uh, please stay well and stay safe. And um, always know that uh, I will be here with you next week. And uh, please do avail yourself of the uh, still very relevant uh, old um, interviews in the archives. Okie doke then. Uh, until next week. Bye for now. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.